Ian, as I mentioned, has uh, just started this series from Genesis and uh, thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I've been given the task this morning thinking about uh, this idea of uh, fruitfulness. So we're thinking about this. So the title of my message, actually, um, you know, every time I do a message, I try and squeeze in a movie. So this is an oblique reference to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Anybody, anybody here into Star Trek? Oh, great. That's all right. There's about six of us. Yeah. Somebody's, somebody's got good taste. There we So in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, there was this uh, Genesis uh, weapon, a uh, missile that would be fired at planets. And uh, wherever it landed, it would just turn everything green into sort of forests and trees uh, and bushes, everything. And then this effect would start there, and then it would just spread over the whole of the planet. And uh, interestingly enough, a little fun fact, the first completely computer-generated scene in any movie came first in The Wrath of Khan, and it was this missile hitting the planet and going around. So go home, get Netflix on, watch The Wrath of Khan, and then bemoan the state of Jeff's quality of movies. So there we go. We'll leave it at that. So... Anyway, so I chose the title this morning to be the Genesis Effect because this is something here about going back to the beginning of the story of human beings upon this planet and the garden that God put them in. But the future that God had intended uh, before we had fallen into sin there too. So we're going to have a bit of a think about that. So we've had a bit of a journey already through some of the scriptures there. And we're going to just uh, sort of progress from that point. The first thing just to remind you about is what Ian mentioned uh, last week, that there in Genesis 1 verse 2, uh, the writer says that now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right there, back at the beginning of creation, the Holy Spirit present, hovering over the deep waters. And... Uh, just the very beginnings, the very prelude to, to life bursting out uh, across this world. You know, there are many people who look at the earth, they look at the planet, and they don't see God at all. I, I meet so many people, and they say, well, you know, tell me, give me some evidence and proof that God exists, and I just sort of spin around like this. Well, everything, just look, just open your eyes, this is it. It's rather like walking into the National Gallery and seeing all these patient, uh, pa- uh, paintings and, and saying that you don't believe in artists. I mean, where the heck did they come from? This planet, this, this galaxy, this whole universe, you yourself are a work of art. You're an amazing, awesome piece of God's creation. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. So he recognizes that we don't see God with our eyes. He says God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So there is a sort of blindness, I guess, that contaminates our world through sin. That means that we don't always see or recognize that God is there at work. But right at the beginning of our reading today, we see this evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in this world and always was from the very beginning. 
Now, just in case you fall asleep through this, I thought I'd better just tell you where I'm going. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the... Um, there's me forgetting what we're going to look at. The, the purpose, uh, that's fruitfulness, the mission of fruitfulness, and the danger of fruitfulness. Okay, so that's sort of where we're headed. The other side to this, I just want to say, I love studying the Bible. I mean, I don't just study the Bible when I'm preparing a Bible study for a house group or for a sermon. I just love studying the Bible. I think it's an amazing thing. But when you're given a passage like this to look into, I love going back to the original Hebrew and all that. Now, I'm not going to be quoting all the original Hebrew, but what I want to tell you is when you go back and look at it, it is so exciting when you see new things that you had not seen before. I'm hoping this morning that I'm going to show you something about the importance of what happened in the Garden of Eden and its purpose on the planet. I'm hoping it's going to change how you see these passages and that you've never seen this or noticed it before. And maybe like me, you'll be thinking, how did I not see this before? So I'm hoping that by the end we get to something that you feel has been exciting and illuminating, but also that God just speaks to you by his spirit. So really the first thing to emphasize about whole of this creation that the Holy Spirit is overseeing is this. There is that the very purpose of everything that God made is fruitfulness. It says there in verse 23 to 21 that God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. Literally what that says is, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. The swarms upon swarms upon swarms. It's just everywhere. Let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. Now let me just say here, verse 20, this is God saying how he wants it to be. So it isn't like God is just a magician who just clicks his fingers and says, boom, there we go. There are swarms upon swarms of living creatures. He says, let it be like that. That's my vision. That's how I want it to be. And then it says, verse 21, so in order to get that to happen, God created the great creatures of the sea, every living thing and uh, that moves upon it according to the kinds, every winged bird according to their kind, and God saw it was good. I'm racing through this. So, so God has a plan. God has a purpose, and it's a big thing. It's not just small. It's life, fruitful life everywhere in great abundance. But fruitfulness was a creation command by God. It's really and essentially the very first thing that God says must happen once he's created stuff. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply upon the earth. In other words, God was acknowledging here that things were going to start small. It's like planting a seed. It's going to grow into a tree. The tree's going to produce apples. There are seeds in the apples. The apples will fall. Those will create more trees, and the whole process goes on. And so there's something of that here, that when God brings this command of fruitfulness, there's a recognition that it's going to start here, but I want to multiply it. I want to increase it. I want it to be bigger. I want it to go all the way across this planet. Earth was created with a colossal capacity for life to increase. It had small beginnings, but a massive vision by God of what it could become. We have an amazing God, don't we? I don't know about you, but when I, I mean, I love living in Scotland. Obviously, I'm English. My family background is Welsh, but I love Scotland. 
it's just such an amazing place. One of the reasons is, um, I, you know, I, I see the awesomeness and the beauty and the wonder of God all across this country. You know, when I go into the mountains, when I go and stand on the coast, occasionally when I look at you guys, I see a little bit of it. But no, I, you know, God is amazing and we see him in all his glory. He's an imaginative God. I mean, goodness me, you only need to just watch some of the BBC wildlife programs that there are and see this amazing abundance of incredible things you never even realized existed. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, God, what an amazing, imaginative, creatist artist of a God that you are. He's a God of growth, a God of change, a God of transformation. Wow, it's amazing. He's amazing. So the very purpose of all this stuff God said, is for it to be fruitful. But you know, there's more than just the purpose, more than it just sitting there and being fruitful. There is something beyond that. And this is the mission of fruitfulness. First of all, we read in scriptures that God creates the heavens and the earth. So we've got all of this amazing stuff. So if any of you uh, can go out at night and look at the stars, you realize just how small we are. I don't know, does, does anybody, did anybody go out and see the aurora last week? No, right, okay. Well, I've got a recommendation. This is a complete sidetrack from the message. Download the um, aurora app on uh, your phone. It will give you an alert when there's an aurora. The aurora was seen over Dundee, of all places. Okay, so you could stand across in Newport, look at the city, and the aurora was over the top of the city. So if we go outside, folks, if we lift our heads and our eyes to the heavens, you know, there's incredible glory and wonder all around us. So anyway, God creates the heavens and the earth. That's the big scene, the big scenario with all of the living creatures. However, then in one small part of earth, then God created something completely different to anywhere else in the whole of creation. And it was a garden of all things. Scriptures call this the Garden of Eden. Now, you may never actually have thought about this, but the whole point is a garden is different from wild countryside. Uh, if you've got a garden, I can probably almost guarantee that there's some sort of boundary or border to it. You might have a wall, you might have a fence, you might have bushes and trees, but the, there's a garden... And then beyond it is whatever is not garden. That's the whole point. And so there's different ways we could think about this. So it's, the other thing that we, we know from Genesis is it isn't just boundary land. In other words, it has some type of border to it. Is that, that God puts the man and the woman there to manage the land, to look after it. So it's cultivated, it's managed. So maybe it's almost like park land. Um, does anybody know where this is, this photo? Central Park. Anybody been to Central Park? Yeah, a few of you. It's an amazing place. Look at that in a city. The reason I chose that picture was because it's obvious there that it's got really clear boundaries to it. Um, there's a photo I'm going to use a little bit later, which is of Yosemite National Park, which is one of my favorite places in the whole planet. Uh, but interestingly, uh, you can't just walk in. You can't just drive in. They, they have park rangers there with barriers across the road. And they're very selective about who they let in. They wouldn't let Fred in. I mean, let, let's face it, look at the state of him, honestly. Would you, would you let him in? 
I'm I'm just, he's going to get me afterwards. Sorry, Fred. Um, Of course, he would let you in. So the garden, think about it. It's it's, it's like a boundary land. It's being managed and cultivated by the human beings. You might want to think about it rather like one of the national parks. Uh, But the point is really is that there is inside the garden and there is what is outside the garden. And the scriptures tell us in Genesis that one of the keys about being inside the garden, which is where the man and woman were, was that that was a place that God would walk. That God would make himself physically, visibly present with the man and woman and that he would walk with them. That was was what it was like before the fall, before sin came into the world. We walked with God in this amazing land, this cultivated, boundaried place. Very interesting, if you go all the way through the New Testament and get through to Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that once we are saved, once we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we now walk in the Spirit. We are walking with God. It's like a restoration to what was happening back at the beginning in Eden. So we've got the inside the garden, which is being managed by the man and the woman, and then we've got the outside of the garden, which is the whole of the rest of creation. But effectively, it looks like it's unmanaged land. There's no boundaries or borders to all of that. And it tells us there in Genesis 2.15 then that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden. Now, what did he put him there to do? It says... And the thing is here, by by the way, folks, different Bibles have different translations. I'm taking you right back to literally what it says. It says that God put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard or to watch over it. So when you think about the park rangers at Yosemite who are there to sort of guard, they're they're sort of guardians of the national park, then in that sort of way, the, the man and woman, the human beings, they're part of their job was to guard, to watch over this land. And of course, as soon as you start thinking about that, you think, well, why, why would that even be necessary? I slide another movie in so slightly that you'll not even notice. God is the guardian of the galaxy. Boom. Whereas humans are the guardians of the garden. That was, that was our job. That was what we were given. That was what we had to look after. And so, If God had had his way, creation would have just carried on like this, with us managing this particular land that was boundaried. But there was more to it than that. In Genesis 1, verse 28, it tells us there that God blessed the man and the woman, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Notice this. So he's given them the garden. He's put them inside the garden to work it, to guard it. But he also says to them, Just like the animals, I want you to be fruitful, to multiply, and to go and fill the earth. Now, those three words are exactly the same things that God commands the the animals, the living creatures to do. But then he adds two extra commands or tasks. He says, I want you to subdue, and I want you to rule over. To subdue the earth and to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over over every living creature. That subduing, that ruling over, was the distinctive part of the job that God had given to human beings. And that was because what was outside the garden was in some way qualitatively different to what was inside the garden. 
But God was saying to them, just like the animals, all the living things, I want you to grow and to multiply and to spread and to fill out the whole earth. So you're not just going to stay here in this contained space. It's going to be bigger than this. I think that's important because sometimes we have this view that at the beginning of creation, it was just a sort of static paradise where we're sort of sitting in in, uh, recliners in the middle of a sort of beautiful jungly garden with fruit surrounding the trees, and and that eternity was just us, you know, chilling out doing that. Isn't it amazing here, and you may never have realized that right at the beginning, even here, before sin, God had given man and the woman a mission to go. It was a mission to go, and it was a mission to grow as well. Let's think a little bit more um, about that. What we're realizing here is essentially that God was saying, what is going on here in this garden I want you to take it out there as well. It's as if Eden is going to spread out across the earth through God's mission of fruitfulness and presence. Inside the garden, they were to be fruitful and to multiply. Outside the garden, they were to go and fill the earth. In other words, there was a sense that if we were stood in the garden today, that God was saying, I want you to take what is in here out there. It's not just for this place, it's for out there too. And then those words, to subdue and to rule. It's quite a puzzling word, isn't it? The word subdue, right at the beginning. I mean, before sin, why, why that word? Why, why would that need, even need to be there? What was there in creation that needed to be subdued? But um, if I just change the, the, the wording slightly, here, and we think about the, the idea of subduing was to bring something under, to bring it under the authority. So you've got these two word, phrases in English, uh, to bring under and to rule over. So there's something here that goes back to the purpose of God as hu- making us as human beings in his image on the planet. Now, one of the, imi- one of the messages in the next few weeks it might be Fred's, it might be in's, it's going to cover stuff around the image of God, but I'm nicking some of their territory right now. But essentially, being made in the image of God, you know, we, recognize, we represented God's kingship over the whole of creation. And so wherever we went, there was this sense that we brought things under his rule and we took that place of ruling and commanding. So the task of managing the land in the Garden of Eden went further beyond and outwards with us according to God's command. God essentially had a plan to make the whole earth his special dwelling place, the dwelling place of God. Now, I could bamboozle you here. I'm going to drop one line. This is a whole other message at some other time. But if you want to try and understand why it was like this, think about the Old Testament temple. So the Old Testament temple had at its heart a holy of holies. And then beyond that were the outer courts where people could go. And what you need to, in a way, see is that the Genesis story is depicting creation as a type of temple. And the garden is like the Holy of Holies. And then there's this outer ground beyond it. And the idea really is that the Holy of Holies is going to just explode outwards and go everywhere and take over absolutely everything. Anyway, that's a whole other message. We're not going to go there. I'm not going to pursue that right now. But I just thought I'd drop this in. 
So all of this is happening before the fall, before sin came into the world. What was going on inside the garden was fruitfulness. It was multiplication. It was growing. But the garden wasn't going to be able to contain all of the growth that was happening that God has commanded. So it had to go out. And God says, I want you to go out and fill the whole earth. The world wasn't going to get any bigger, but the Garden of Eden was. So the garden wasn't just growing. The garden was going. And um, there's a beautiful verse in Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, sort of summarizes really the destination for all of God's plans and purposes uh, when he says this. This is a sort of ultimate uh, Genesis effect. He says there that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, let me just say here that God is omnipresent. So God is everywhere already, but Habakkuk is describing something very special and particular. He's not just talking and saying, well, the glory of God will be everywhere. He says the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the whole earth. This is, in a way, the ultimate destination of where everything is meant to be headed, where everybody Ultimately, filling the earth knows God. That's, that's the ideal. That's what God wants. So let's just think a little bit further then about some of the dangers of this. Because there is danger in fruitfulness. And the danger was there, in a way, already at the beginning of uh, the story that we're looking at in the Bible. What I want to start by saying is this. You know, pretty much all sin is a corruption of something that God made to be good. You know, sin isn't in itself original. It always breaks uh, or exploits or corrupts things that are already good that God has given us. So we're going to see that uh, in the passage that we're going to look at. So there is a real danger that's present in this garden situation. But the, the danger starts because there's a blessing there in the first place. It tells us there that the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Isn't that wonderful? What an amazing command to give to the human beings there, to give to the man and the woman. You're free to eat. Uh, literally, it says, you may eat and eat from every tree. It's just wonderful. Isn't that an amazing thing to think that right at the beginning, God commanded us to be free? He, he commanded us to have a freedom to choose from all of these amazing, wondrous collection of things that he had provided for us. God created fruitfulness, and then he gave us the opportunity to then go and just pick and take. And you could have eaten from a thousand different trees and been inside the will of God. But we also know here that there was a warning, because following on from these words, God says, but you must not. He says, Adam, when you look at all of these thousands of trees, you're free to eat the fruit from absolutely any one of them. But there's just one I don't want you to touch. And the scriptures tell us that this is called the, tr the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, I've spoken about this passage before. Uh, and sometimes people ask the obvious question, well, if it's so dangerous, why doesn't God just put a fence around it? But one of the things to understand here is, for human beings to be truly free, they need to have a real choice. And this tree represents the absolute reality of the fact that God did not make us robots. He could have done. 
He could have just pre-programmed us never to do anything else. But he gave us real freedom, real freedom to choose. And for that real freedom to choose to mean anything, there must have been an alternative. This tree represents that possibility. But it's a possibility that only is accomplished through disobedience, through failing to trust God. So there is a real danger uh, in this. So we tell, told in, in Genesis 3 that the man and the woman, having been tempted by the serpent, take the fruit and they eat of it. Because they've been convinced that actually God's withholding something from them. So even though we have a God of immense fruitfulness, a God of great generosity, who gives us all of this freedom and choice, what did the man and woman do? They didn't have their eyes set upon that stuff. They had all their eyes just set on the one thing that God said not to do. That just tells you something about human nature, doesn't it? That we're willing to do that, that we're willing to pursue that. So there is this real danger of fruitfulness when the desire for the fruit becomes greater than the desire from the fruit giver. Isn't that heartbreaking? And that's what really the serpent managed to convince her to do. Convinced her that God was withholding. Yeah, God's given you all of this amazing choice, but actually, he doesn't really want you to grow. He doesn't want you to fulfill your possibilities. There's things here that you could take. And he convinces her, and indeed, she does. You know, instead of being filled with the fruit, we should be filled with the fruit giver. The Holy Spirit there hovering over the waters of creation, surrounding this whole scene. I can't imagine how heartbroken God was to find that the man and woman hid from him now. The couple that he had made to be in a relationship with him. They could have had the fruit from any tree. But as human beings in our greed and desire for more, we sell our freedom and we make ourselves slaves. And so as a result of that, access is denied. So this is a picture of Yosemite National Park. And uh, recently the park was closed due to wildfires. So if you wanted to go in, there were barriers across the road and you couldn't get in. Well, now what happens in this story, we're told, is that the man and the woman are driven out of the garden and essentially guards guard the gate and don't let them back in again. It's a heartbreaking scene. God describes that exclusion from the Garden of Eden. He calls that death because we no longer have access uh, to the tree of life. We're no longer in that special relationship with God. What's ironic here is, you know, that God drove them out of the garden and into the world beyond. Actually, folks, remember God's command to go and fill the earth? They were supposed to go out there, but not like this. God's plan was that they would take the garden and all the wonderful qualities of that into all the earth. Part of their job was to guard the Garden of Eden. The irony is here, we've got these amazing angelic creatures in Genesis 3, the cherubim. It tells us that they guarded the gateway or the access to the garden. The man and woman were supposed to be the guards over Eden. The same word is used here now to describe the cherubim, these living creatures. They've lost their job. They're redundant. And now somebody else has got the job. 
and they're not letting them back inside. Now, the story tells us that these human beings are out there. We are out here filling the earth, but in our natural state now, outside of the Garden of Eden, all of that fruitfulness and multiplication is happening without the spirit of life and the spirit of fruitfulness. God's out there. He's pursuing human beings, looking for us, calling out to us. So I suppose, you know, when we think about human beings being driven out of that original garden, that amazing place that God gave us, and that amazing mission to take this growth and to take the presence of God into all of the world, once you've lost your job, once you've been made redundant, once you've been driven out, shown out of the building with all of your worldly possessions and you stood looking at security guards not letting you back in the building, where is the hope? Where do we go from here? Is there a way back? How could creation be restored and renewed again so it could go back one day to what God meant it to be? Well, there's an amazing, incredible sort of irony here about what God does to bring about that change. The man and the woman were experiencing initially spiritual death, and, and there was a time when they were going to die physically, physical death. God, in his amazing, awesome wisdom, decides that he's going to use death as a road to bring human beings back to himself. And, and that road back is through the cross. That God himself doesn't stay distant and just up there and out there and invisible. God takes on the form of human flesh and he comes now walking. Not in the garden with perfect human beings. He comes walking through, through the lands and the territories with sinful human, fallen human beings. And what do we do to him? But crucify him, hanging him upon a cross. And yet the incredible, impossible thing happened. That death could not hold him. It could not keep him. And he burst forth from out of the grave. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that this path through the cross and through the grave is the way back to God. He writes in Galatians 5, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The thing that got human beings kicked out of the garden in the first place, God deals with at the cross. Amazing, isn't it? He heals the very soul and spirit of who we are so that we can now live. So Paul says, if we live by the spirit, we will also therefore be able to walk by the spirit. This is a restoration of what was going on in Eden. God's starting the whole thing all over again. And just in case you miss the, the fact that this is connected to creation, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the behold, the new has come into being. Folks, we are longing for a new heaven and a new earth, aren't we? For God to renew everything. But get this, the new creation has already started. And you are it. I know when you look around the room, you might think it doesn't look very much like new creation to me. I was saying to Sandy before, Paul says in Corinthians that while we live in this body, this tent of a body, he says we groan. But inwardly, we, be, we are being renewed day by day. 
How can that happen? Because your soul and spirit has been resurrected through the living power of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Now, because a new creation starts in you at that point, when you come to faith in Christ, then the whole Eden thing kicks in place. What does Paul say in Galatians 5? That happens because now the Holy Spirit is in you, dwelling and living. He says this fruit will now start to grow. The fruitfulness that was back there in Eden starts to get a foothold back again in our lives. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what an interesting phrase he throws in at the end. The law is not against such things. I, I cannot help but that, that think that Paul was thinking back to Eden at that point. You know, the, the one tree. Don't eat that. What he's doing here is he's pointing at all the other trees and saying, do eat this. This is what it's all about. This is life. This is being alive. Isn't God amazing? So what God is essentially doing today in Jesus through his death and resurrection and filling us with his Holy Spirit is rebooting creation. Is rebooting the Genesis story inside you and inside me. Genesis 1 says, God bless the man and the woman. I'm saying, we're just going back to the beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and rule over it. The new covenant version of that is found at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. It's the same thing essentially that God is saying. He says this, so all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking now. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What, what, what Jesus is saying there is a restatement of the very creation purpose at the beginning, except at this stage, the world is full of sinners who are fallen and separated and are outside the garden. But the action is the same. Let's grow and let's go. God has started fruitfulness in you, but it isn't, that's not just what God wants. He wants that fruitfulness to go out there, to fill the whole earth. And there's a more personal direction here with which I'm really going to finish. In John chapter 15, Jesus speaks to his followers and he says this, and I think this is really powerful. He says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And more than that, I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. You know, in the garden, God appointed human beings to manage that land, a land of fruitfulness. And, and we, lost, we lost our job. We were made redundant. We were kicked out of the building. Jesus is saying here, I'm giving the job back to you guys. And I'm choosing you for this. Isn't that amazing? I chose you. God chose you. And more than that, he's appointed you to bear fruit. That's his purpose and desire for your life and mine. Let me just say something here. God has not chosen you because of what you've done. So it isn't like, you know, we come to God with this great long CV, with all of the great list of things and courses we've been on and skills we've developed and say, I think you should really take me on. I'm going you know, to do great things uh, you, you know, for the neighborhood, for the, for the town. 
God, you really, I'm doing you a favor, God, really. I've got plenty of other places I could go, but I'll, I'll, I'll work for you. God isn't looking at our lives like that. And the other side equally is true. God isn't spending his time looking at the disaster that your life has been. You know, the mess that you've made, the things that you've broken and bust, the relationships that you've abandoned. He's not even looking at all of that either. Jesus said, I chose you not because of what you've done, because of what you are going to do. God has a vision for what your life can be if you will put it back in his hands. And when we do that, we reconnect to that very beginning of the scripture story, back to a place of fruitfulness, inwardly and outwardly, where we grow and where we go. God can do amazing things. And this story this morning is a cosmic story of what God has done with a broken creation and broken human beings to get the whole thing back on track so it's not broken anymore. Folks, I wonder, is your life really in God's hands? Is it full of fruitfulness? Are you growing? And I guess also, are you going? Somewhere in all of this, God's speaking to all of us. And I'm just hoping that maybe just seeing this original story here of what God intended this garden to be and how he intended it to grow and spread might give us a vision, a fresh vision, of how this beginning story fits with the story of the church and the people of God, how it fits with us here this morning. So I just want to invite you just to close your eyes and while we're doing this part, if the musicians want to just come back up, I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to read these words from John 15 to you again. And I want you to hear them and take notice that God, that Jesus, is saying these very, very specifically to you this morning. Right? At this minute, you don't need to think about anybody else who's around you. You just need to hear him speaking to you. And he speaks to you by name. And he says this. You might think you chose me, but you didn't. I chose you. I came looking for you. I wanted you back. So I chose you. But now that, now that I've got you, I've got a job for you. I want you to go. I don't want you to just stay. I don't want you to just say static and not change. I want you to go, but I also want you to grow and bear fruit. And you might be a bit stuck this morning. I feel like you're not going anywhere and things haven't really changed very much. But if you will just open your heart afresh this morning to the Holy Spirit of Jesus... He's saying that he will just pour out living waters all the way through you. Mind, body, soul, and spirit. And those waters will generate fruit. And it's going to be fruit that will last. It's going to be eternal fruit. It's going to be amazing. God's going to plant a garden in you. And it's going to change the world. So just in your mind's eye, just acknowledge presence of God and just invite God just to fill you afresh with his spirit
and say, Lord, yes, I want, I want this for my life. I don't want it to be dry and dead. I want it to be a living, beautiful garden that's growing for you. I want my life to be part of your great plan. Lord, come and pour your spirit upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.